Hello, everyone. I'm Lee Green, and welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you a real, honest, and unfiltered interview with top business leaders in all walks of life. So we'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode eight of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green. And in this episode, I sat down with April Uchitel, the recently appointed CEO of Violet Gray. Violet Gray is a luxury beauty brand and online retailer known for their expert curation of industry-approved beauty products. April shares with us her impressive career journey, from climbing the corporate fashion ladder at DVF, where she helped build the brand from a $6 million company to a $300 million company, to diving into the startup world working as chief brand officer for Spring. April talks with us about what she's learned along the way, how building relationships has been essential to her success, and what it's like to now be called CEO for the very first time. If you have any burning business questions that you need answers to, please email them to stairwaytoceo at gmail.com. I hope you enjoy this episode. April, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. It's so fun to be here. I'm really excited to meet with you because in previous episodes on this podcast, I've interviewed mostly CEOs that got their title through being a founder of their own company. And when you start a company, you have to make someone CEO. So most of these titles are given to founders who have never run a company before or even managed people, including myself. (laughs) So I'm um, really excited because you've put so much hard work climbing the corporate ladder over the years to earn the title you have as CEO of Violet Gray, which I find really impressive. So I'm excited to learn how you got to where you are and what challenges you faced along the way. To get started, let's start with your background. Where are you from? What was your childhood like? So I'm from Boulder, Colorado family, four kids, second oldest, very kind of, you know, humble means, I would say. Um, Went to Longmont High School, just outside of Boulder, and, you know, kind of always knew I wanted to do something in fashion and kind of started on the retail path and was a manager of Benetton in college and um, thought I would be a buyer. And so started looking at moving to California to kind of go through like a Bloomingdale's type program and never realized that someone actually sold to the buyers until I got to LA and ran into a girlfriend from college who had just come back from New York market and San Francisco and it all sounded so glamorous. Were you always interested in fashion like as a little kid? Yes, I spent every paycheck. I mean, I was that girl who, you know, started working at 11, babysitting and movie theaters and every single dollar would go into clothing. And I was at Contempo Casuals, which really dates me. But ultimately, you know, this is the land of shoulder pads and bike shorts that are back and would spend the paycheck to the penny. And so somehow I knew that, you know, that was the thing that I was most excited to be part of. And funny enough, my dad was a salesman, that salesman who was 100% commission-based. And so it's a very challenging way to raise a family when you're not quite sure, you know, if that deal is going to go through. And so I swore I would never be in sales. What did he do? What kind of sales? Um, So he did everything from real estate to life insurance to oil and gas. And it was always, you know, I literally remember sitting around a circle in preschool where they went around the room and you had to say what your dad did. And I was like, oh crap, I don't know exactly (laughs) what he's doing right now. You know, so it was a very 
door-to-door salesman kind of deal, which just, you know, the insecurity in that was not interesting. And so when I got to LA and then I realized, again, there's this sales side, somehow I ended up in sales. And so I started answering phones in the LA Mart, got quickly into sales and then kind of, you know, did a whole lot of showroom tours and I would do Vegas and magic and set up garment racks and hotel rooms and, right. you know, work with um, all sorts of department stores and tons and tons of boutique specialty stores. And I think that's really where the relationship building started for me, which became, you know, kind of a critical piece of my overall trajectory is is really around kind of this this community and this this ability to leverage an audience and a network of like-minded souls and people kind of living in an industry in the same way. And along my story, I think that's a big part of you know, what kind of propels people going forward. And so I ended up doing fashion for a long time. I moved to LA at the end of, or about 1990 and moved to New York at the end of 98. And so met my husband here, he's from Argentina and he's a photographer. And we kind of decided to take the New York leap together. And at that time I was working for a company called BCBG. Did you go to college at all? I did. I okay. went to um, I went to Northern Arizona University my freshman year and then transferred to CU. Okay. So I tried to escape Colorado and got pulled back. But really, you know, for me, I studied sociology and psychology. Again, it was never really about kind of going down the sales path, but I, I knew that the one thing that I did like was engaging with consumers when I was doing kind of the retail side. And so the sociology and psychology part is something that I still think is from a behavioral perspective, you know, especially someone who does sales and marketing, it's kind of, you know, a good foundation to have to kind of understand how the human psyche works. Yeah. It was actually probably the best major for me. Yeah. And then I got to New York and transferred to BCBG and then kind of started to really climb the corporate ladder outside of these larger companies. I landed at Prada and I lasted three weeks. Why is that? It was so not strategic and you were very much a cog in a wheel and you had to really kind of color between the lines and you had to use Prada paper and Prada pencils and you couldn't have any personal objects on your desk and you could even hang your coat on the back of your chair. And it just wasn't the right environment. You know, for me, if I like to have impact and just kind of following along behind a trail of people doing the exact same thing was not that interesting. And I thought I would do a year just because I kind of came from the school of, you know, you don't want to jump around on a resume right? and you made your bed, you should just lie in it for a while. And I did that whole pro and con. I sat down one day and I did the cons on one side, which was the entire list. And then the only pro was it's Prada. And funny enough, Max Azria from BCBG called me and he said, do you want to come back here? I heard you're not so happy. And so I actually went back. How did he find out? He just threw, you know, friends who were still at BCBG and um, just told them how miserable I was. And so, you know, pretty gracious of a founder to do that. And I went back and I I didn't stay that much longer because I think once you decide to go, you're really ready to go. But funny enough, I think I manifested my next gig where I, when I was doing my pro and con list, sat there and thought like, what are the companies I would want to go work at? And the only two that I had any interest in were Mark Jacobs and Diana Furstenberg. Why is that? There's something about, you know, at this point, the contemporary world was changing and they were, these guys were really starting to become, you know, the first in. Um, this is before Vince and Theory and all the other, you know, bigger contemporary players showed up. And what they were doing in terms of, I love the heritage of Diane and the reinvention of what she was doing from the 70s now to the 90s. And then Mark, you know, from the grunge era and everything else is just really amazing. So saw them as both iconic 
leaders and people that, you know, a lot of these brands that are heavily about merchandising don't have a face. It was really important for me, you know, to know who the person behind the brand was. And literally within, you know, 48 hours, I got a phone call from Diane. How did that happen? I, I, you know, I keep thinking I manifested it, but the president was looking for someone to run sales and the buyers recommended me. So. And so what do you mean by manifesting it? So what did you do to try to manifest that? You know, I think I I grew up, um, my dad is very metaphysical. He's 85 and looks like Robert Duvall with a ponytail. And I played volleyball in high school and, you know, I'd be really nervous before games and he would always sit with me and have me visualize myself on the court and have me visualize um, serving and visualize kind of, I was a, one of the hitters and I was a good blocker. And so, you know, walking through the steps to- That's amazing. To so serve. you've learned yeah. visualization at a very young age, Completely. basically. And I, I remember, you know, anytime I'd be nervous, if I had to do any kind of performance, I was very active in school. I did, you know, everything from- Senate to yearbook to to sports and cheerleading. And, you know, there was usually a moment where there would be a presentation and it was really the thing that helped me kind of overcome any type of anxiety. And still now, you know, it's something that I definitely use prior to any kind of bigger presentation I have to give. And it really helped me when I was trying to figure out where do I see myself? I'm now in New York. Um, there's a lot more opportunities than there were in LA. Yeah. You know, what types of businesses do I want to to step into? And, you know, and truly where do I feel like I have you know, my own insecurities and skill sets. And so there was something in the personality of those businesses that I found very attractive. It didn't, it felt unique. And so just planted that seed, I guess. That's incredible. (laughs) That's really cool. So you're like, I really want to work at DVF. And then 48 hours later, boom. Yeah, it was kind (laughs) of crazy. And it's, you know, it's something I think through having kids and, and thinking through so many life choices that come, having the confidence in yourself that you have a little bit of control in, you know, the way that you think and the way that you kind of ideate internally on those opportunities. And, you know, there comes moments where you really have to make changes and it's, it's less, it's never really about sitting back and waiting to be called on. You know, I think I I came from that school and I, my first job, I'd spent about seven years um, at a very bridge company called Karen Kane. And this was in the days of like whale, like Carol Little and DKNY was just starting and, and I remember, you know, thinking if I work really hard and do my best, someone will recognize my efforts and I'll get rewarded, whether that's a, you know, pay raise or a promotion. And all I have to do is just work really hard. And then I would watch girls around me, you know, kind of champion their efforts and the squeaky wheels. And I knew I had much better track record and performance and relationships and sales than they did, but they would get advanced just because they kind of champion themselves. And it would, took me a while to learn how important that is, you know, and again, it's, I think it's a fine line of overselling yourself and not actually having the goods to deliver. Yeah. You have to have that, but it really kind of taught me and probably stayed longer than I would have had I been able to really feel confident in my abilities to demand more and to push myself into situations. But, you know, it's, it takes time to get that level of confidence. Yeah. It did for me. And it's funny now I watch kids who, you know, 23, 24, demanding director titles and telling, you know, I'm just like, wait, what? (laughs) You know, it was fashion for sure is that very slow grow, pay your dues, wait your turn, you know, mentality and that hierarchy that can get a little bit mean girl, you know, and a little bit backbiting. And for me, you know, I'm the good Colorado girl, the golden rule girl. And it was really hard industry for me to understand why people behave the way they did. And something now that is, 
you know, in my later years, when you have that hindsight and when you have some more power and you can say, you know, this is not a culture that I will tolerate. And this is something that I can have some control over how people are treated and obviously how people are, are able to advance in a way that fashion and that particular time in fashion just was very, very different and very, very divided and somewhat divisive. Um, it wasn't about helping your neighbor, your seatmate. It was really about pushing, you know, elbowing them out of the way. <laughs> right. Not such a good culture. Right. Exactly. You know? Exactly. So I read in an article that you helped take DVF from a $6 million company to a $300 million company. Can you talk a little bit about that and what that was like for you? Yeah. You know, I think it was, it was, again, you have this founder with this incredible energy and obviously an amazing story, you know, the whole princess to prince where she first started in her career and, you know, decided that she wanted to be more than just a princess. And her mother was a survivor of the Holocaust and her mantra was fear is not an option. And so she was a driving force for sure. And when I started there, I think we were only selling to Zima Marcus and we we're only in the dress department. And it became, you know, this really amazing moment of taking the DNA of a brand that had that type of a heritage and, and helping understand how we could evolve it into sportswear, or how we could move out of the dress department and how we can grow beyond a certain expectation for the brand. And we also, you know, this is the very early stages of the contemporary overtake of the department store floors prior to kind of now it's just pollution. I think, you know, there's so many brands, there's so many people fighting for that, that specific customer, but this was a very unique time. And so we were able to kind of get in there early. Um, this is pre-recession also. And so you know, as we evolved the product and we did it through literally strategically thinking store by store, merchandising, bringing Diane in when we needed to, understanding how we differentiated ourselves in the space and quite frankly, targeting a different customer. So Diane still saw herself as a customer, but when she would do a PA at a store and all the women her age would come in, they weren't fitting the clothes in the way that she was. And Madonna and Gwyneth Paltrow and, and Diane's daughter-in-law, Alexandra von Furstenberg, started wearing vintage dresses that they were finding in vintage shops. And it wasn't the DVF product that Diane was making and who she was targeting it at was just herself more mature. And we did a quick pivot and we started to go after really the 20s and 30s and not the 40s and 50s. And that was the game changer. And so being able to get into Barney's and get into places where the line was perceived completely different than if you're in the dress department at Bloomingdale's. So making those changes and then, and then growing our international business where we were able to sit next to Stella and Chloe and work with Tom for matches and open our own stores in London as our first foray into direct-to-consumer and being able to attach that prestige. And then it just kind of blew up from there. That's awesome. What were some of the biggest challenges that you faced or failures that you learned from during that experience? You know, I think for us... It's a matter of, you know, what, it, what we didn't do is really kind of evolve the product at a certain point. So I was there for nine years and we did, you know, a few different brand extensions, a lot of them not well, you know, in the way that like, how do you enter a new market and, and how do you plan for that? And whether it's fragrance or beauty, which we did to handbags and shoes um, and really understanding the nuances of those lines. And it's not just the same stuff on a shoe. And that's also changed so dramatically and the consumer doesn't wear one brand head to toe. And I think we just weren't very innovative in the way that we expanded across category, um, especially looking back now to some of the ways that businesses have, have come up and targeted what even 
from like a Tory Burch and how she approached sport and how it became its own business. And we didn't really think through things like that. I think we also, you know, have Diane and we leveraged her as much as possible. But at a certain point, it's really hard if majority of your brand equity is on a person and not attached to the product that that person makes as that person, you know, grows up and getting people to connect with the product, not the person also became really tricky. So people would come to an event and they would see Diane and they would be shaking and crying and hugging her and then they wouldn't shop, you know? So it was like, how did you make that connection? Or they really wanted to buy a piece of Diane. It had to be product and not her book and, you know, seeing her speak. And that, I think also we did not do the right kind of handing off early on um, so that there were other people that kind of took the ambassador torch and, Hard to do when you have such an iconic founder. Yeah, definitely. And how big was the team when you were there? And how many people were you managing in your role? So I managed um, the sales team in New York. We had an agent situation in London, in LA, in Germany, and Italy. So I managed all of those teams. And then there was a merchandising team that literally went to the stores. So they're the ones, you know, who would do all the product knowledge seminars and reset the floors. So extensively, you know, it was about 40 or so people, but critically with the agents where we were seeing the most growth. And then, so I managed all of wholesale sales. And then we had a different team who ran retail and we did a lot of shop and shops in Asia who took on, did a lot of that business. But it was very cross team, you know, merchandising and sales are very connected, marketing very connected. And the most fun was really being able to, to grow a business and then the relationships you build along the way. So I can, you know, can call chairman of department stores, you know, still, yeah. no matter where they end up. And I think to me, it's, it's always been really critical that integrity, honesty, it's everybody comes back around, yeah. you know, the way you manage a tricky situation, whether for us it's negotiating margin or profitability or having a really rough conversation about exiting, you know, doors or canceling complete orders and relationships and why you can't sell to this person versus that person. You know, it's how you handle those things because people remember Yep. and people move around and it's never burning a bridge, which is, sounds pretty obvious, but it's shocking how many people, you know, kind of push through in the moment, not realizing that weeks, months, years later, yeah. that is going to bite them. Huge effect. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Big mistake. <laughs> Big mistake. Exactly. So what have you kind of done? You know, those communications, those conversations you're talking about are really hard. And you mentioned, you know, there's definitely a learning process. And how do you kind of, I guess, surround yourself with the right people or mentors? Or how have you gotten advice on those kind of conversations yeah. that you've had to have? No, it's, I mean, that's, that's really critical. I mean, I usually get asked, who is your mentor? And sadly, I, I cannot really point to a boss or a leader to say, this is who taught me this. It's, it's almost more the reverse. I learned a lot what not to do and a lot of ways not to handle. And so strangely, you know, with bad bosses, I would become the go-to. So I would not be the boss, but everybody would come to me to understand how to manage the situation with the boss. So I would weirdly play the Switzerland role everywhere I went, where I think I was seen as a leader, even though I wasn't the leader at yeah. those, in those points, but good at kind of managing people and managing up and down. And I think to be a leader, you know, that's really critical. And it's definitely not a dictatorship for me seeing the impact of someone's behavior on other people probably taught me the most, you know, 
catching that girl crying in the bathroom and trying to understand why and then giving her advice how she should handle it or rewriting people's emails so that they didn't sound a certain way. And, you know, I mentored in the CFD incubator program for a long time and I literally would rewrite the emails. They would send them to me first. I'm like, you cannot send this to a buyer. Yeah. You cannot talk like this, you know, and really just helping people with those, those nuances that can really mess you up if you don't do it right. Right. That's so true. And so what are some of those things you mentioned, bad bosses, right? And learning what not to do. What are some of those things you learn not to do? I think the, the hardest part when you're on a team is someone who leads selfishly and someone who leads with what's best for them versus what's best for the company and what's best for the team. Equally, it's that need to know basis, you know, where you kind of get to a point and it's tricky if you at scale, it's really hard to have the level of transparency and collaboration that you can have at a smaller scale um, where people all feel like they have a say and a voice, you know, and you can't make decisions by committee, but you want everyone to be able to have a say. And, you know, I think that's the balance. And I know, you know, we're trying to strike that here as companies scale. It really, it starts to be almost impossible to have 27 people in the room for a decision-making meeting, yet they're all heavily impacted by those decisions. And so, you know, finding the right way to get buy-in and to communicate, you know, so that there's transparency to a certain degree. I think the people that really lead by, it's none of your business and you don't need to know that. And, you know, and I've had a lot of those bosses. And so if you, if you own a piece of the strategy, but you have no transparency or awareness into what that other team is doing or why they were funded in a way that you weren't funded or what, you know, that's where it gets really hard to feel aligned and to, you know, eventually put the effort in that you need to. If you're feeling that things feel there's inequalities where people have access or say versus their ownership. Yeah, definitely. So you spent nine years at DVF? Nine years. Yep. All right. And then how did the job come about at spring and why? So I probably overstayed my welcome a year at Diane. Um, I'd had my second son and it was a little bit, the, you know, the devil, you know, I knew it was a good job and I could do it and I could leave and I could go home, but it started to feel very rote and um, not at all inspiring. Um, I was that girl who, you know, could kind of get myself to tears interviewing someone to come to the company because I loved it so much. And I, and once that was that stopped happening and I started selling people on coming to the company, I knew like my heart's not in this anymore. And I also saw, you know, kind of the future of fashion was very broken and everything from seasonality to, you know, just the relationship with the stores and the, the fights that you have to get in, the deals you have to make and the pay to play aspect of who really does get the bigger floor space is who really can pay for it. And, you know, there was less and less of a, an opportunity at a certain scale and maintaining a business and under those terms is not easy, but also the fact that all these new business things were happening. This was the very early days of Everlane, you know, even prior to that. This? Probably 2000. So I left DVF in 2011, but I saw this end coming and I knew that I did not want to be a 50-year-old Garmento. And, and truly the next role would have been the president of a company, um, you know, going to a mono brand. And it just wasn't that interesting to me. You know, I, I knew it was Groundhog Day to a certain degree, but very broken Groundhog Day. I call fashion like one of the, most frenetic, slow-moving industries. It's really this <laughs> all day long and you move a little bit, you know? And it just felt done and I felt done. And yet I knew that I didn't have the digital experience to really get into, you know, where the future was going. I mean, we were one of the first people to have a blogger. I remember like getting a whole like, what is Twitter? 
Right. There's like brands still without websites yeah, at that time. I, oh, so, I totally. So many. Yeah. And so many stores without websites. And so you would want to go check out a boutique that wanted to carry the line and they don't, there's no, you know, digital footprint. And so in many cases they were bringing in pictures of their store. I mean, this is, this really goes back. But ultimately, you know, I knew I wanted to get into digital and I had, didn't run our, the DVF e-com didn't report into me, even though I, you know, worked with all the department store websites, but I wasn't managing anything around, you know, digital marketing and acquisition and really understanding that customer side and the tech side. And so I left DVF, didn't really know what I was going to do next. And we, funny enough, we were in Tribeca and we had a house upstate in Woodstock and my husband's a photographer and he'd been trying to get out of Manhattan for a long time. So we decided to flip our home base and we moved into our country house upstate and we put the kids in school up there and I started coming into the city a couple of days a week. And that's when I started mentoring an incubator program. At CFDA, yeah. right? Awesome. And, um, you know, which was fascinating to work with these brands that, you know, were like two and three people and just starting. And at the same time, I started being asked to get on advisory boards. So, you know, I could weigh in and a lot of the ones I was choosing were digital so that I could also learn. And one of those was a company called Bonfair that was acquired by Moda Operandi. And, and that particular advisory board is where I met a woman named Ara Katz. I met Ava Chen. I met a bunch of different people who are also on the board. And at the time had just left Beachmont where she was one of the founders and she was consulting and we did a couple of projects together. And then she was actually the one who called me and she's like, you know, I have your next thing. It's called Spring. And then I had a phone call with Alan Tish, the founders, you know, 26 years old. And he was like, you know, could you help us think through like the brand side and what would brands want from this type of a platform and help us really just build out the value prop and also weigh in on the UX. Um, this was very early in the app ecosystem, you know, where everyone was trying to figure out, should I have one? Do we invest in it? What does that look like? So focus on mobile only. So it was about, you know, solving that pain point. And in essence, it was building a marketplace from scratch. And Immediately, I just thought, oh my God, this is going to be the phoenix that's going to rise from the ashes of the demise of the department stores and <laughs> the, future um, the of retail. Yes, yeah. completely. Because it was so attached, you know, from that Uber moment and kind of being able to have one point of sale that's aggregated on your phone. And funny enough, Diane, who is very much a visionary, years before had said, there's going to come a day when we're going to do everything on our phones. And I was like, that's never happening. Really? You said that? Oh yeah, for sure. I was like, I was, I was on a Blackberry, first of all. And ultimately, like, I was like, why do people text when you can just email? You know, it's really crazy. Yeah. But this is how the world evolves so fast. And so realizing that, yes, there is a day that everyone does everything on their phone. And if you can be connected to incredible brands, you know, one point of sale, one app that aggregates everything and, and gives control to the brands. So the challenge for me always in fashion was it's a very dysfunctional relationship because, you know, if you have a margin agreement and you don't make it, you pay the department store the difference. But if you exceed it, they don't pay you. You know, it's not a partnership. So ultimately thinking through all those frustrations as well as being able to own the merchandising and not whatever the buyer wanted and how they shoot it, being own, owning the content, owning the voice, owning the pricing, we were building all that into spring. So I just, you know, I knew I could get behind it in a, in a really big way and have an impact. And so I decided to sign as a consultant. And then within a few months, I just really felt like this is where I need to be. And I, you know, seven months after I started consulting, dragged the whole family back to Manhattan which was a hard one for my husband. And ultimately I would spend days just running from brand to brand to brand. And so for me, having, you know, had a SVP title and a team and, you know, now it's just me coming from the Port Authority bus station of upstate, 
running to Altazura and Mark Jacobs and Estee Lauder and then downloading and jumping back up to the country. It was a complete change. Wow. Um, but I really, I just, I love that we were building something that I had such integrity and control over that. And so being able to leverage my relationships and then continue to build on them. So by the time I left, I'd probably worked with over 2000 brands and really work with them in ways where I have incredible relationships and, you know, kind of took all those learnings through my years of sales and boutique relationships and the buyers and the GMs and the chairman. And so I was able to get right to decision makers. So having had that seniority, I could go and meet with CEOs and CMOs and, you know, it wasn't coming, you know, climbing from the ground up, which is the value that I really brought to a startup of 27 year olds. But at the same time, you know, my peers were like, what are you doing? Like, what? Oh my God. Right. They're like, what's this company? I've never Completely. heard of it before. I remember, being a, I remember being at a trade show thinking that maybe we'll talk to brands at a trade show. And I saw the whole Bergdorf's team and they're like, oh my God, are you like selling an app? And I was a little horrified. And then, you know, a year later, like, oh my God, how did you know how to do that? You know, right. and but like, it was, tell us your secrets. Yes. But, you know, there was a lot of egos, you know, swallowing in that moment and, you know, hustle. And, but I just knew it. I knew if I didn't do it, if I didn't pivot, I had to kind of climb down the jungle gym and back and around that I would, you know, kind of have less and less options every year. And I sadly see a lot of my peers in that situation, you know? Yeah. And it, it's really, it's, it's just been changing so fast. And so within that, I started talking to beauty brands. So, also so just like, a really quick pause, because I want to go to, you know, building your network is kind of this overall theme. How do you nurture those relationships? How would you, I guess, give advice to someone who's starting out in their career who wants to have that type of Rolodex? And what advice would you give to nurture those kind of relationships? It's always that give and get, you know. So when anyone would ask me of something, whether it's get a coffee, can I ask you this? Can you make this introduction? You know, who do you use for this? And, and it's really started coming from spring because I was working with so many brands and I was realizing, wait, you guys should know each other. You guys should talk to each other. They have the same problem. And the CFDA also was a big part of that, having so many, you know, 90 some members. And as I start to go to events, you would meet brands and they would ask you a question and I would do the same thing. So I started this weird kind of networking inadvertently because I just saw the value of sharing experiences. And it's weird, again, it's changing a lot, but fashion was very siloed. And so everyone would be literally next to each other hitting all the same obstacles along the way, whether it's like, who do I use for international distribution? What's the best agent in Asia? Like, do you use Shopify or Magento? You know, like all these brands are growing and scaling and hitting the same walls, but no one's talking to each other. And CFDA in my mind is an opportunity to do that, but they didn't do it to that degree. And I started doing that at spring and doing that at the CFDA. So my network scaled exponentially because of that. But it really was this, you know, providing them with very valuable information, whether it was a five minute phone call, a half hour coffee, and at the same time, I'm asking questions, right? So I'm like, okay, so how much do you guys spend on marketing? Okay, so how do you, you know, what's, you know, whatever, whatever. And I think it's that almost like a shared economy approach to what's really evolving around community now and the way the wing is and the way that all of these membership-based could be the, even just sometime with the WeWork, you know, where people are sitting and sharing information and that's becoming, you know, more and more expected. It used to be really hard to ask someone one of their trade secrets. And even in the beginning with Spring, there were brands that were like, mm, not telling. And other yeah. brands were like, what do you want to know? And it's completely changed now. Because, Especially in fashion back in the day. It was oh, like, yeah. doors closed, no doors answers. Closed. I'm not Who telling are you? you? Yep. No, I can't give you that buyer's number. I'm like, really? 
you kidding me? Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Where it's like, okay, I'll figure it out. But it's, that's really changed because, you know, the market is big. And we started doing it even at DVF where against the department stores where they would call and say, everyone's doing this. And you'd be like, okay, I'm just going to triple check that everyone's really doing that. And then you'd call all your president friends and you find it actually, no, I'm not paying $42,000. I'm paying 20. I'm like, oh, great. Good to know, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so you have to tap into that world around you and to build it. And even when I do panels and people come up to me, you know, it's hard. It's hard to carve out that time to just connect with people. And I did it a lot. I spent a lot of time running and hustling and building a base with integrity and with people who I thought long-term future opportunities. And even now being in LA, a lot of our brands, there was about 70 brand partners from, that were on Spring that are here. And when I landed here, it was really easy to connect quickly about opportunities. And, you know, everyone is, is very happy to support each other if they feel like it's a two-way street. Yeah. At Spring, you know, obviously it was a startup company and very different. What were some of those big differences and what did you see worked or didn't work at Spring? You know, my heart and my soul and my passion were in, in disrupting the industry. You know, our first blog post was going to be fuck the department store, which I'm glad we didn't do because we ended up working they with all of them it. in the end. No, <laughs> you know, but for me, it was really this, I wanted to go out there and say, we're going to do this together ourselves it was really where I found the biggest opportunity to break away from that old model. And therefore that was my pitch to everybody and getting people on board. And, you know, you're selling them into a platform that they had to integrate with. You're selling them into kind of a new way to think about affiliate, you know, kind of driving traffic, acquiring customers. How do you leverage this channel? What learnings can we share? What dashboard information do you want to know? Like, we'll share everything with you. What do you want to know? How can we do this better? And it was so liberating. And you would talk to a brand and they would be like, oh, this is great. Can you also tell me this? Like, no, but we'll build that in, you know? Yeah. And so we really felt like we were building it with and for the brands. But when you start to take a lot of investor money and you start to have to put numbers on the board, you start to do shortcuts and things to kind of expedite growth or acquire customers who may not be super valuable. And that's really where the direction, the leadership that, that I did not have control over started to go pretty quickly. And then I realized it was very counter to what I had been selling as our bigger value prop. So it became in conflict at a certain point where we stopped telling the brands the whole truth and we started kind of doing stuff around the back doors that brands would eventually find out. And then technology is very different. They feel like, you know, move fast, break things, apologize later, don't ask for permission. Yep. That is not how I work. So it was really hard for me who had been the forefront and the face-to-face -face kind of making the connections and the deals to then have to apologize for behaviors that I did not participate in. Yeah. Um, and then that's kind of when I knew like, okay, this is, this is going a different direction. And I've really kind of contributed what I can contribute without starting to feel just not great about it. And so I ended up exiting and the timing just worked out where my husband really wanted to come back to LA. And so we did. And I left spring last July. Last and, year. Yep. Last yeah. year. Yeah. And Thought I would consult, wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do next. Really had started to like beauty from obviously Evergreen and Margin and um, this idea of the emotional connection and more accessible price points and size agnostic and all the things that fashion isn't. And obviously, you know, what was happening and is happening in that beauty and wellness space is super intriguing. And so, you know, there's an incredible energy in LA right now. And I think 
so many female founders and so many, there's, there's such an entrepreneurial energy in yeah. California that was not here when I lived here in the 90s. It's changed dramatically over the past five years, yep. really. It's just exploded. And there's a million New Yorkers coming every day. Yep. I'm one of them. <laughs> yeah, I know. I think like half the team at Gray is from New York. So, you know, it was just the timing worked out. And then I landed here and just kind of took a couple months to settle the family and house and figure out what I wanted to do next. And kind of back to Ara Katz, who was one of the co-founders of Spring, is an advisor to Violet Gray. And so when I told her I was moving to LA, she said, you know, you should really reconnect with Cassandra. There's a lot of transition happening there and there might be an opportunity. And so we did. And for those listening that don't know who yeah. Cassandra is, she's the founder. <laughs> yes, Cassandra Gray is one of the co-founders. And she, you know, had had been through a kind of a tough year. Her husband passed away. And so we'd be, we'd kept in touch and we'd had kind of touch and go conversations. And then she literally came out of the blue one day, you know, she's like, can you come to my house right now? So this was in August. So I'd gotten there in July and, you know, she kind of laid out for me the vision that she sees for the brand over the next few years and her idea to not be the CEO anymore. You know, mm-hmm. she wanted to focus on voice and brand vision and just the art that we do here around content and that she's, you know, has such a strong, clear sense of kind of that, legendary content that no one else is really doing right now. That's, that's really set the brand apart and really wanted somebody to kind of take the keys. So that's kind of how it happened. Yeah. So, I mean, going to, this is your first CEO title. First CEO. Congratulations. Thank you. And was this something, I mean, have you always aspired to be CEO? When I left Spring and I was, you know, again, running kind of a team. So I ran a team at DVF. I ran all the sales teams and strategic kind of mindset with the president and then did strategy as well as kind of the brand side at spring, you know, those were kind of my sweet spots between people and relationships. And and I definitely can, I'm a good Pied Piper, you know, I can, if I believe in it, I will get everybody to come. Yeah. And so that's kind of a skill that I had. And funny enough, when we started talking, there's a few different partnerships she was working on. And I thought hey, maybe I'll come in and consult and help you with those things. And then kind of out of the blue, they're like, she's like, I just like, can you just be the CEO? And I was like, wait, what? And funny enough, I called a friend of mine who is a CEO. And because I sat there thinking, what? I don't even know what that means. You know, I don't even know like how to do that. And um, he said to me, he's like, listen, he's like, it's just chief cheerleader. The CEO is just (laughs) chief cheerleader. You're just chief cheerlead, you know? And I was like, I can, I can totally do that. (laughs) Yeah. You're like, hey, that sounds fine. So yes, he completely oversimplified it to the point where I was able to like put it in my brain as like a, I can do this. And, you know, I thought I can do anything once. I can try anything. I can do anything for six months. I can do it, you know, and I kind of gave myself enough of a runway of commitment that I felt like, okay, if it's not a good fit. And so we kind of aligned on an interim role, obviously, and we were also fundraising at the time. So I had, depending on who we were able to to partner with, um, they might want to place the CEO. And so I, you know, it would let me baby step into the role, to Mm -hmm. be honest, um, where I could have an out if it didn't work. And I could also, um, which I can't believe I'm admitting, but it was, <laughs> it was very much of like, okay, I can push myself only so far. I can't like tell myself for the next five years at that moment, right? Yeah. And I think sometimes we, especially women, feel like we can't do it unless we're a thousand percent qualified. Yes. Whereas, you know, men might say, I, do, I can do one of these things, I can do the whole thing. So weirdly, I kind of tried to convince myself to think like that, to say, okay, you, you got this and this, this, you've never touched any of this other stuff and you'll figure it out. But it was very similar to spring, you know, kind of drinking through a fire hose every day of like new learnings and really understanding, you know, what it's going to take, 
We were also transitioning through fundraising, but also through you know resetting the team. And so it was a lot. And I knew really quickly, the only way this is going to be successful is if I find the right people. Yeah. And so, you know, I think having good instincts for people and understanding, you know, I think how skill sets work together. So I was really fortunate that I met Gila Jones, who's our COO, probably five months in. And, you know, she as just, I could just tell. And she was like, I want to build this with you, you know? And I think for me, I have the ability to, like I said, kind of rally people, but hopefully inspire and hopefully through all my years of bad bosses and kind of shitty cultures that I said to Cassandra when she offered me the role, I'm said, you know, all I really care about is culture. And, you know, if I'm going to spend 50 hours somewhere and away from my family and at this stage in my career, like that's critical. And so she said, build it. So build the culture that you want. So that's what I say to everyone who joins the team, you know, that we are, have a shared responsibility, regardless of what your role is, that, you know, you can contribute to this culture and it's not a sit back and let someone else do it and then let us know if we're doing okay. You know, and so really went in with that lens and everybody I interviewed, very transparent and honest as to what, where we're at with the business you know, sharing a lot of information that brands don't generally share with employees to have real clarity into, you know, what our goals are, you know, what our risks are financially, where we're at to a certain degree so that everyone understands, you know, what we can afford and what we can't afford and where we're going to be spending and making those bigger investments and why, you know, and I hope that, you know, if you come in feeling like a stakeholder, a, if you are in a startup, you're a certain kind of person anyway. Right. And I think, you know, there's this desire to kind of have cross team collabs that you can learn about everything. You know, it's not about, again, kind of staying in your lane. And if I do marketing, I just talk to the marketing team and, you know, I don't talk to anybody at the warehouse or the retail store or, you know, in content. And that's how you learn, you know, sitting in those meetings and understanding different teams kind of KPIs and also vernacular, you know? And so when you can sit around a table and someone can talk about their business and someone else can say, I'm sorry, what does BOM mean? You know, that's pretty great. What does that mean? That means beginning of month Okay. Um, on an open Dubai, which is an OTV. But I remember being at spring and, you know, getting slammed with a vernacular and the acronyms and just frantically Googling things while I was on a conference call. So yep. I knew what people were talking about. And I want people to feel like I want to learn across the board beyond my own ownership. And it's the only way that, you know, you kind of can take that 360 approach and wherever you go next, you know, if you have even just like high level working knowledge of how another department works, I think, you know, you're, you're much better skilled to contribute than if you kind of stay in this box and travel throughout. Right. So you've done some hiring since yes. you've been here. And um, how big is the team right now? We're close to 30. So we have, you know, we have the store in Melrose Place and we put in an incredible manager there who has really brought an amazing energy to that location. It's already such a dreamy place and it's a, you know, a 700 square foot kind of jewel box and so unique. I don't know any other retail environment like it where you feel like you're shopping in a chic French apartment, you know, with yeah. experts and you just want to play with every product on the shelf. Um, you know, it's definitely antithesis of kind of the big box beauty, you know, retailers. And so what we do really different is around the code and approving every product that gets on our shelf and building a team, you know, that is a team of experts to a certain degree, especially on a startup budget is not always that easy. You know, when you don't have a lot of cash to throw at 
senior, senior people, you find the people that are really ready to contribute and pivot like I did. And it's just so exciting to rebuild something and build something that already has such incredible, you know, kind of market industry cachet. Yeah. You know, I told, cause I, when I first started working here and I was at a dinner and people are like, wait a minute, you're from Violet Gray. And I feel like Bono. I'm like, guys, I just got here like last week. It's next. That wasn't me, you know, but there's this real, like highly revered aspect to our brand. You either know us and feel that way or you've never heard of us. Right. So, you know, those are, that's, that's good. Cause now we've, we have a lot of opportunity to grow. Definitely. And, you know, just really critical that we maintain the integrity around, you know, the vision and the voice of the brand, you know, not watering it down for revenue, which is really hard. You know, it's the hardest part of, of building where you we get a ton of inbound opportunities every day. And some of them would be very cash positive, but don't ultimately make sense for the brand or may dilute a greater opportunity later if we do that one now. And, you know, this is, this is the tricky part, especially maintaining kind of the profitability that you need to, to scale. Um, so sometimes you just want to take that opportunity because it does have a lot of dollar, you know, signs right, attached to right. it. And I think that's really where Cassandra and I are great partners where, you know, she's very much the gatekeeper and where I can tend to be like driving sales, which sometimes is completely inconsistent with maintaining brand. And a lot of the learnings in my frustration at spring was that me maintaining something and other people driving the other direction. And so really conscientious of how do you do both, right? How do you not water down the vision of the brand and, and grow? And so the right people, you know, the people that uh, really understand the brand ethos and are just so excited and passionate to be part of what we're doing and to contribute from their worlds of experience. And I think, you know, we've done an amazing job, you know, with the team that we have and adding to it. And, you know, there's a few more open spots into next year and then it's about scale. Yeah. So looking back on your career, what was, tell us about a moment and we all have these where it was like either a major mistake or a huge failure or just a time that you just fell on your face and you had to peel yourself back up and be like, it's okay, I can get through this. It was that transition time when I left DVF and I wasn't really quite sure what to do and how to do it and really feeling like we, we could have done so much more at Diane. You know, we hit a wall and we just kind of sat there for a while and comes down to who's got authority and, and ownership. And I knew that I was not going to be able to drive it. So it, that kind of feels like a failure to me because when I look back at the brand and it's really lost a lot of its market share and it's changed so dramatically over the years that we, you know, we just didn't do it right in the end. You know, we had this incredible velocity and when we got to these really high numbers and, and ownership, we somehow couldn't get to like the next level, the Michael Kors IPO level, yeah, you know, this yeah. level of like, how do we just go, go for it? And so, but it, again, it was a lot of the decision-making that sometimes didn't come from a place of, of real feasibility, you know, management. It was just like a gut feeling someone had and made a decision that day. And then we just tried to execute. Yeah. So it was really not having process, I guess. And, you know, tech really taught me, as hard as it was for me to sit in these meetings and, you know, I didn't say KPIs and passion. No one said that at DVF. And learning in language and learning a process piece and learning how to be operational as opposed to just how to operate was something that we didn't have at DVF. And I think it was also just not part of the, the industry culture in general then. It was really, you know, much more relationships and sales and just things just continued to grow um, until they didn't. Yeah, And so f I think failure was really understanding this big shift. And, you know, luckily I feel like, I don't really feel like I've ever fallen on my face other than just stay overstayed my welcome. 
for some reason, that was something that I'm very likely to do is getting comfortable, um, kind of being afraid of the change and probably should have left my first job two years earlier, probably should have left my second job two years earlier. Yeah. I mean, that's actually really interesting you say that. I mean, I think people really get comfortable and they're afraid of what's after this, you know, it's such an unknown. It's hard. It's hard to take a risk, you know, especially if things are good, things are good enough. Right. And it's trying to find that balance. So if you can get the work part manageable and you can put more effort into personal, you know, especially self-care and family and all these other things, it's, it's hard to have equal amounts of effort going towards all of those aspects of your life. And sometimes if work is just good enough, it's easier to make those other things a priority. But then sometimes you look back and you're like, oh shit, I should have gotten off this treadmill like a year ago. Right. You know, now what the fuck do I do? You're right. You know, and right. that's probably for me definite. Who knows if I would have landed in the same place, if the stars would have aligned the same way. But for sure, when I would look at peers who jumped quicker and faster and started making a lot more money than I did early, you know, they were able to take that one year job and get that title change and a much more, you know, much bigger salary. I never felt like they might have been as confident in that new role as, you know, because then I see them jump again in six months, which was just not how I was wired. But somehow I kind of went the extreme the other way. So what three key, you know, characteristics do you think make up a great CEO? For me, I guess it's just being able to be seen as a leader, right? You want people to respect you you know, and to trust you and to, to feel connected to you. And that's something that I feel like I, I have high integrity and I really have a, luckily a, a great industry, you know, reputation of kindness and inclusivity and really trying to find the win-win, you know, for, for everybody. Sometimes not easy to do, you know, the strength and the conviction in that. You want to trust who's at the top. And you want to trust that if they don't know what they're doing, they're going to figure it out or they're going to get someone who does. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, no one wants to be like, wait, where are we going? Right. And so for me, when I look at other leaders that, you know, I don't work for, but I know I have a lot of female friends that are founders, you know, this real passion, you know, it's like you have to really believe and love what you do. If you can't bring the heart and soul to it, then it feels methodical and rote and not human in a weird way. You know, and I've had those bosses where... Um, it's very much for them about the next title and, you know, can they get a board seat and can they get, you know, and it's, it's what motivates you and we're not selling widgets, you know what I mean? We're, <laughs> we're really connecting and, you know, a lot of our mission statement is very much around that emotional connectivity and the way we treat our team, our, you know, we call everybody from our brand partners to our consumers, to our artists and to our employees, you know, we consider everybody our team. And I think that's an amazing lens that Cassandra has really, you know, worked hard to evolve um, the company into thinking on this much bigger opportunity and not just who sits, you know, in this office and what role they play, but it's it's every single person we connect with. And, you know, so it kind of goes back to relationships, you know, at the end of the day and network. Yeah, definitely. So being a leader and a CEO involves an incredible amount of resilience and persistence What's a routine activity or thought process that helps you stay on track and positive and motivated every day? For me, it's just, it's the connecting with the team, you know, and putting in kind of weekly touch bases and weekly meetings that keep us all aligned is not go around the room and everyone justify what they're doing. It's really connecting and being able to, to understand all sides and 
whether it's from a workload or, you know, asking questions of each other, I think that has really helped me to make, you know, it's like, I'm a checklist girl. I've got lists running everywhere and I'm constantly kind of crossing off my to-do list. And, you know, I have two kids and a husband and this company and, you know, it's finding that balance and being able to be really understanding of lifestyle that happens for everybody. And this sense of you're an adult, you live in the world, you'll figure it out that you're accountable for what you're accountable and you'll get it done how you need to get it done and not having, you know, kind of this, very rigid, you know, work life, like two weeks vacation. This is the beauty of startups, right? You get that unlimited vacation, you know, because technically you're probably underpaid for what you're doing because of what these companies can afford to pay and the quality of life and the ability to learn on the job and to contribute in a way is not only a unique person, but it allows for hopefully a quality of life piece as well. And it's finding that balance of how much you invest of your day into building. And for me, I'm that, you know, I work late many nights, just kind of catching back up and setting up for the next day and the next week. And, you know, there's a million things that are on my to-do list that I have to keep punting, unfortunately, you know, that I know are really important for the business. And there's just only so much you can do. And delegating is something that once you have the right team and then helping them understand ownership and, and what they should be delegating so that, you know, things can move forward really helps if you kind of have this synchronicity. And so being able to put in processes that I feel help me, but my assumption is they're hopefully also helping each other. And then we check in, you know, we're like, is this still working? Like we have too many meetings. We need to do this better. We need to have, you know, more clarity and and really evolving, you know, not just doing it because we say we're doing it. If it's not working anymore, we redo it. Yeah. So to get to where you are, you've had, I'm sure such a, an incredible personal development journey. How would you describe that journey of personal development to get you to where you are? I think we're all insecure at the end of the day. You know, I think we all feel like if someone really knew what I bring or what I don't, don't know or whatever. And I have to say age, I'm telling you, makes a difference. You know, I talk about this with my girlfriends all the time. It's, you just start to care less about some, some things that may have been a priority before and now you don't care at all. Yeah. And you're freed up in different ways. You also have less and less tolerance for certain things and also kind of helps cut through the noise and just, you know, kind of, you know, make more definitive decisions because you're not, you're not even factoring them in. For me, it's also been having an amazing husband who you have to have the, you know, the partnership is beyond your network. It's really this understanding of, I am going to sit here till midnight almost every night at my laptop and I will see you in the morning, you know, <laughs> and you're gone and I'm gone. And what, are, you know, who's picking up this, what's happening. That is such a critical part of the balance. And I think, I don't know, you know, single moms and, you know, there's so many people that get so much stuff done in a way that it's really incredible. And, you know, I think women, we don't, we tend to always take on a lot and we tend to put ourselves last usually where it's hard not to put, you know, kids first and career and husband and, you know, you're kind of at the back of that. And I think something for me really going into next year is trying to get myself more to the front of that. When you're doing startup, there's no downtime. You know, you could literally be thinking or working on something every minute and being able to say, it's actually okay that I'm going to watch a TV show right now. Yes. And that was not the world of fashion, you know, fashion, you know, you walked out at six o'clock at night, unless you were, you know, traveling or in market and, went back in the next day and said, okay, I'm going to open my emails. You know, Clock now in and out. Yeah. Now, <laughs> yeah. you know, we're all 24 seven and it's really hard to have the balance. And usually the leader sets the tone. So if, if I'm emailing you at midnight, 
do I expect an answer back at midnight? You know, and I've had those bosses who were like, you know, I'd wake up, if funny enough, at spring, like I would go to bed and it would be on an email and I would wake up in the morning and there'd been a conversation going till two in the morning with five people. And I got in at six o'clock and I couldn't weigh in. It was already done. And I'm like, okay, this is, I'm not up for this. Wow. You know, this pace of like, if you want to have a say, you better be 24 seven available or we'll make the decision without you. Yikes. Not ideal <laughs> and definitely not sustainable, but there are definitely times when, you know, there's a fire and, you know, it's the people that jump in and save it. And the people that at midnight are fixing the fire, yeah. you know, especially in e-commerce, especially in where things can go wrong in a minute. It's a really tricky balance. Yeah. And I think finding that for all of us is, is not that easy, but especially difficult when, you know, every day is kind of like mission critical. <laughs> right. Exactly. And there's fires all the time that you yep. have to put out. So as far as mentors, you've mentioned mentorship being a very important part and you're a business mentor at, you know, CFDA incubator. What advice do you have for those kind of, you know, working on their career, looking for mentors to surround themselves with. I mean, it's t difficult. You can't just go up to someone and say, will you be my mentor? Right, you right, know? which I have people do all the time. And I'm like, I would love to, but I really like, you should see my calendar. Yeah. It's hard. You know, I think some of these networks, you know, and, and honestly, there's so many people, you know, I remember when Firesides first started happening. I'm like, this is awesome. Fireside chats, yeah. I know. A founder's going to come in. That's why I'm like doing this. <laughs> Just, it's amazing. The conversations are good. I mean, finding out, you know, these, there's so many groups that do these events in stores, right? So now retailers incentivized to have their founders sit and talk about their life and then bring in other people that are either influencers or somehow shifting the culture bringing them all together to have a conversation. You know, I've been fortunate to be invited and go, you know, speak on all these panels and you can get this group in a room and have access to people that have all done things differently and ask questions. And in many of those is when I see people really kind of connecting. So if you kind of, you got to, where is your wheelhouse? You know, what is it that you're working on? And then where do those other people doing that spend their time and, you know, finding those community aspects and, the Wing is amazing. It's opening here in LA. And I went with them to DC for the first Women's March and had been a, kind of more of the founding member there when it was just the one location. And you just, this this energy was palpable of people connecting like, oh my God, we can all just sit here and you know meet each other and ask each other questions yeah. and spinning that into some of these, you know, kind of larger opportunities to go and sit and listen to a lecture and a talk. And there's so many. So it's, it's finding, you know, again, what motivates you and where are those people and what is that industry? But it's something that is a give back from these brands wanting to invite conversation um, and connect consumers to, you know, things that builds loyalty all around. But I think it's a really incredible time of just people kind of opening their doors and, and hosting conversations and events, whether they're political or professional and there's a lot of it going on in LA. Like I yeah. probably like I could be on a panel a week given how many things <laughs> right. are happening and, and how many people are just trying to create community. Yeah, it's great. What's something you wish you would have known early on in your career? Oh, uh, you know, I, I think, like I said earlier, like advocating for yourself, you know, that whole like waiting to be discovered. Yeah, like you're doing so great, April. Keep it up. Like it doesn't happen. Right. You know what I mean? You have to kind of just be like, okay, this is where I want. This is where I'm going. I think having a sense of direction is important, but also knowing that, you know, being open to opportunities, you know, I really kind of like took a direction and stayed in it until I realized this is so not going and how I kind of maybe experimented a little bit more. I would have probably got into digital sooner. You know, I kind of was like staying in a lane. And I think 
asking questions, asking if you can learn more about that. This is also the beauty of a startup where I would say, can I be in that meeting with the tech team? And they're like, why? I'm like, because I just want to hear the conversation. Like, okay, sure. Like, I just need to, I want to watch how this meeting goes down. Yeah. You know, because for me, that awareness of how other people contribute was really critical to understand my side of it, you know, because I was always used to sales is more important than design, than marketing. Like without us, you can't do that. You know, you get this sense of, again, siloed impact. And so also knowing that it's no longer this, like you have to stay for two years somewhere. You know, I would look at those resumes of people jumping and I would immediately write them off. And now I look at some of those resumes and I'm like, okay, this is really interesting. And you know, the girls that came in and said, I got everything I needed out of that gig. Yeah. And then I knew it wasn't for me. And so I went, you know, and this is why. And somehow having that self-awareness and also like, I, I still have people come up to me the other day and said, okay, I, I'm trying to do what you did. Like I'm trying to leave this industry and get into a new industry. I don't know where to do. I don't know how to start. Like, what do I do? And it's it's really hard, especially if you've invested, you know, many, many years in a career. Right. So what do you say to them? I mean, to me, it's like, it's, it's this passion piece. What do you want to do? And once they start talking, it's just, you start to realize that they kind of do have it figured out. They just don't know, like, do I just cold call this per? You know, how do I do this? I have a lot of friends that have pivoted or started their own business later. And it's generally around no one else was doing it and I couldn't find it. So I made it myself. And, you know, it's still really hard to launch businesses like that, but there's, it all goes down to this passion piece and then seeing if you can turn it into a business, Yeah. but trying and realizing that so many things are changing every single day. And these opportunities are coming up uniquely through collaborations and, and ways that I'm constantly meeting people and sending people who are sending me people. And so if you're not out there talking and this woman in particular, I immediately connected with somebody and, you know, she emailed me the other day. She's like, thank you so much. She's meeting me for coffee. It's just putting yourself out there, but also just knowing it's not a straight line. There's no straight direction that many times you're going to have to stop and pause and kind of go lateral or down, you know, and come back around another way. I mean, you know, it sounds like you've done that too. And so it's like, okay, this has a timestamp. Yeah. And it's interesting. The expiration the date. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you mentioned like 2011 was when you were starting to be like, okay, DVF has been great, but like, how do I get on this like digital bandwagon, you know? And it's similar for me because in 2012 is when I kind of realized I was in New York as well in the fashion industry. And I'm like, there's not very much innovation happening right now. And there's, a, there's always innovation in fashion in New York with um, design, You know, it's always like innovating on design. But in Los Angeles, that's where I noticed there was a lot of innovation on business models, subscription business models, direct to consumer. I mean, all of these brands were just like popping up all over Los Angeles. And I remember in New York at that time, I think Rent the Runway was like the only kind of tech forward company. It was the Warbies and the Harrys and, Mm -hmm. you know, that world, Um, Casper and Everlane and all of a sudden, you know, Reformation here and starting to look at the world a little bit differently. And I remember while I was mentoring and a lot of the brands would be like, do I need a website? I'm like, yes, you need a website. <laughs> yep. You know, they would be like, oh my God, I got a sale. They would like get a, they get a text on their phone like when they got a sale. I'm right. like, it's, you know, it's not the field of dreams. You can't just build it and people will come. And so it's challenging. I was like, where do you invest? Like I, I have to build a team, then I have to build an infrastructure, then I have to actually drive traffic there. And I mean, it's not so easy. And, you know, all these D2C brands started opening physical points of sale to connect from that perspective. And, you know, I've watched them all kind of scale and 
watch what's gone on with Rent the Runway and The Real Real. And, you know, The Real Real reached out to me early. Julia reached out to me when I was still at DVF. And she's like, do you want to do this with me? And I was like, I don't get it. Like, you're going to photograph all that stuff? And I'm so confused, you know? And I mean, obviously look at her business. Right. Um, so it was not innovative in that way. But thinking through new ways to do it, you know, yeah. I think is actually the most exciting part. And I think there's so many different options, right? You know, and if you look at what's happening with the real estate in the stores and pop-up models, and then, you know, that whole thing is being disrupted. How you can get in front of somebody, you can collaborate with five other brands and do an event. I have friends at Chateau Marmont, you know, doing a whole event, you know, holiday shopping in the bungalow this weekend. They're all great brands. Yeah. They, you know, rally together, drive traffic collectively, you know, meet and mingle. And, you know, this, it, I keep kind of going back to community on every level, but that sense of like, there's a value in a collective not only the shared learnings, but, you know, much more interesting for a consumer to connect with. If you think through hearing these stories, they always end up usually with like a way that it brought a bunch of people together, right. you know, whether it was um, shop and shop, you know, we all took a corner or a trade show or some sort of like what we're doing on Melrose Place. We have, have been there for, you know, five years and I realized that nobody was talking to each other. So I'm like, where's like the, you know, community board for Melrose Place? Yeah. Like, there's not one. I'm like, okay, well, let's just make one. So we set out to connect all the stores and, you know, our manager, who's amazing, Allison, literally went and knocked on everybody's door with her business card and said, hi, who's the manager here? Like, and we created kind of contact database for all the stores. And we started kicking off what we call um, Melrose Place after hours. And so... Every Wednesday through November, December, um, stores extend hours to eight o'clock and have some sort of activation. So cool. kind of leading back to, you know, fashion night out in New York. But this idea that it's much more interesting for a consumer to come if there's multiple things that they can engage with. And so we all drive traffic. We all share our customer. We're able to do interesting events and learn about, you know, what our audience is interested in. We can get press around it. And it was, it just literally took someone doing it. Right. And, you know, we have had such success and our finale one is next week. And I think Isabel Morant has a pony coming. And so, oh you know, it's <laughs> pony rides. Exactly. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's a matter of how can we all, you know, like all boats rise. Right. Right. That's awesome. So I know you've got to run. So just three more questions. Mm -hmm. What's the toughest thing about being a CEO that you think most people don't really realize? It's it all kind of rests on you. <laughs> I remember yeah. I was talking to two girlfriends and I was explaining something. They were like, well, they should know that you, I'm like, no, no, I'm they. And like, well, they should, they should tell you, they shouldn't let, I'm like, no, no, I'm they. And I think that was when I was like, oh crap, yeah. that's me. It's all on you. Yes. And yeah, so it's not, I can't be like, I can't, can you believe that we have to work on Monday and it's like president's day? I'm like, yeah, that's me. Right. You know? And so that to me was really overwhelming in the beginning thinking that type of, responsibility and control that you could make the wrong decision and have kind of crazy ramifications. And I think going into it was definitely a concern. Like, oh my God, can I bankrupt the company? Like, what could I do? They'd be so wrong. You know, like what is this big downside? And obviously we're a smaller brand. This is not a fortune 500 company and we're not publicly held in the way that, you know, we have really street responsibility um, from a reporting perspective, but you know, we have investors and we have advisors and we have a team and you know, some days we're paving the road while we're driving and, you know, you can't always make the right decision. And for me, it's just that ultimate buck stopping somewhere. And there are 
definitely days where I would much rather make, I'm like, let's all decide together. You know, yeah, like how yeah. can I, how can <laughs> take I take the share? pressure off? Totally. <laughs> what do you think? Yeah. You know, so far we've all been on the same page. So I haven't had to, you know, kind of go a totally different direction, but we definitely have, you know, there's definitely conflicts. We have very respectful disagreements. Agree to disagree. Agree to disagree. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But I think that was to me like that realization was like, oh crap. Yeah, it's a lot. (laughs) It's a lot. So what's next for Violet Gray? So we, you know, we had an amazing year. You know, like I said, our store has done incredible, you know, really connecting with the consumer in a unique way. For us, we've always been, you know, known for our content. And so continuing to scale the content piece and new monetization strategies around that. We have our committee that is always you know, can been behind the scenes of the Violet Code. And so the Violet Code is basically nothing makes our shelves unless it's been um, tested and approved by this committee. And that committee is about 150 top artists and stylists and influencers. And mm-hmm. it's legit. We do not carry anything that people haven't said, this is the best, we love it. So for us, what's really exciting is being able to kind of bring that committee more visibility so that the consumer can understand who's behind the committee, you know, why do I care what they think and they can also speak more to the, the products that they've approved. And so if you think about what's going on in the world of affiliate, you know, marketing and influencer marketing, there's a way that, you know, we're, we're looking to be able to elevate our, our committee partners as we see ourselves as an influencer ourselves, you know, and I think that's an, a shift that we've made internally. You know, we're a retailer, but we really have influence on brand positioning and, We've been able to launch, you know, some incredible brands this year. We have a a brand called Augustinus Botter who launched with us in, you know, at the end or beginning of Q2 as one of our number one brands and all through some really amazing marketing strategies, but also, you know, because it's a great product and because of the influence we have and where we're able to help them reach early and kind of setting that tone. And so, you know, for us, it's the discovery and the curation and, and doing much more of that, you know, realizing that it's this niche brand that's winning these days and obviously sets us apart from, you know, a lot of the mass players um, where you can get all the same things at the same places. And so, you know, really the way that we do discovery and curation, you know, through the lens of this committee, you know, bringing a lot more of the storytelling to that so that people can really connect to who we see as the face of our brand, which is really that team, you know, Cassandra as well, really kind of getting back out in front of the brand. You know, she's been doing that for the last year, but in, in a much bigger ways going forward. And then, you know, we're, we have incredible growth plans, you know, some stuff I can't really talk about yet. <laughs> Top secret stuff. Exactly. But I think we're really in an incredible place and, you know, we feel it. We feel this really awesome energy. I can't tell you how many people tell me every day how obsessed they are with Violet Gray. Yeah. So, you know, and it's, it's not easy to maintain that even right. for the last five years. And so they've done a really incredible job and people are looking to us at all levels of... Who are we carrying? What are we talking about? What are we saying? And, you know, we're able to be a bit irreverent. Um, we also kind of played in the political space a bit, which I think is really important in today's world to have an opinion, to basically, you know, have a voice and not just ride the middle so that you can maintain a certain right. sales I don't target. think that works anymore. No, I think the customer is smarter yeah. than that. Informed. And we did a, um, a campaign around voting with I'm a voter and we closed the store for voting and we closed this, you know, the site for voting. Um, we highlighted about 13 different female activists and, and actresses to understand why voting is important to them. And we did a campaign. My husband actually shot 
And it was so powerful. And I happened to be at the Glossy Beauty and Wellness Summit while this was happening. And, you know, it's about 200 industry insiders there. And I think Violet Gray was mentioned four times on the stage by four different people talking about, you know, kind of like, like Violet Gray is doing look like Violet Gray. And then, you know, shout out to Violet Gray. And (laughs) they're like, hi, I'm here. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it was actually so amazing that that type of approach is resonating with brands and brand founders who are like, fuck yeah. You know, like that was so awesome that you guys did that. And no retailers that really took a stand and used putting a picture of the Women's March on your social media, you know, it's about as far as people go. But I think, you know, it wasn't partisan. It was just like, just go use your voice. And I think that's, it's so important to be able to, to take your platform and make sure that it has meaning. Definitely. So last question, what advice do you have for others who aspire to become leaders or CEO like you one day? Oh man, Um, (laughs) get ready. Yeah, Yeah. fasten your seatbelt. Yeah, fasten your seatbelt. I think just suck up as much information as you can. You know, I didn't go to business school. I don't have an MBA. I don't do a lot of things I should do. You know, as a CEO, I should be part of a CEO group. I should be doing a lot more. Um, There's only so many hours in the day that I have. And I think that type of prep work is great um, if you can do it. And if you can find those, um, those networks and those courses that just really help you understand some of the operational aspects where I've been kind of learning on the fly like what? Like management? Or I mean, how to run a board meeting. Yeah. How about that? You know, <laughs> I'm like, wait, what? So someone who calls it to order, <laughs> you know, I will, is there's definitely moments where I'm like, oh my God, who can I call right now really quickly for a cheat sheet? Right. Um, and luckily people are it's great. Yeah. And they'll be like, okay, this is, this is, okay, this is how board protocol works. And this is what you need to do. I'm like, okay, I got it. Yeah. Making sure that you just think through that landscape a little bit, but I think you also, best laid plans. You know, I don't know who wakes up and says, I want to be a CEO when I grow up. Maybe that happens. I think it's like, I want to own a company. I want to change the world. I want to, you know, invent something. And the best thing is finding the right people and knowing when you can't do it anymore or knowing what you have to hand off to somebody who has that skill set and really empower them to own it, you know, and for me having visibility and oversight, but how far in the weeds do you go? where, you know, then you really can't go forward and how much can you empower and trust? And then it's, you know, the checks and balances along the way. So I think just the protocol piece, because if you're the CEO of a company of three, the CEO of a company of 50, you know, it's obviously very different. Very different. Um, And knowing when like CEO isn't the right title for you. You know, I think this is really where Cassandra got to and she's just like, this is what I really want to do and can do really well. And that part, it's actually not what I do well. Right. Is also being honest to a fault of like, I can, you can only fake certain things so much. And then you really have to say like, I need to now really learn this, you know, and I need to, to dive in deeper or I need to hand it off. Yeah. Awesome. Good advice. Well, thank you so much for your You're time. Welcome. This was really fun. I appreciate it. No, I appreciate it. It was fun. Thanks for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. If you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at stairwaytoceo at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends and leave us a review. Until next time, keep on climbing. Keep on climbing.